sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Rumor and innuendo, you've heard about your favorite bands and songs, and we look into it. My name is Brian. And I'm Murdoch, and we are happy to be back here yet again to tell another lurid story. Thank you for mystery. Thank you for all of the notes and the questions and the advice and the goose chases you send us on. Uh, the mailbag is we are the story guys at gmail.com, and we got a note from Randy today. Uh, Randy says, I really like your podcast. I was thinking that Tommy James would be an interesting episode. He was hugely popular with a bunch of hit songs in multiple decades, but his career was all tangled up with the mob. What can you tell me about it? The mob? Really? So do you know about this? Have you ever heard about this? I love Crimson and Clover a lot. I mean, I and Crystal Blue Persuasion. I love all those songs. But the only thing I had any sort of um, anything where I had any connection with him was at a concert and he ended up being like second on the bill to Chuck Berry. Wow. What year was this? This was not uh, 2001. Okay. 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 Yeah. And, but I, I had heard that everybody on the tour, including Chuck, was this pain in the butt, except except Tommy, who apparently was very nice. But like I heard that it was just kind of unusual, like his, you know, I, I guess like his touring people or whatever. But there was something about it, but I didn't know that it. I, it sounded weird, but I didn't know it had anything to do with the mob. Well, at this but point, I, no, in, at this point in two thousand one, he's he's a Christian. And I believe he's a fairly outspoken Christian by 2000. So you, what you might have been hearing was that, hey, all these other people are hard to deal with, but Tommy might be a little odd, but he's very nice, and, and that might be the Christianity. I don't know. I'm just speculating. Because he liked Striper? He, he, was, <laughs> he, was, in the, he was in the back just jamming in the green room to Striper. The makeup artists were like, guy, you got to turn that down. Uh, you so, cannot wear yellow and black. This does not work for you, Tommy. You are 65 years old. You can't look like a bee. Uh, we're not going to get all the way to, uh, to Tommy uh, in 2001. We're going to go way back, though, to the beginning of his career. And I've sort of been aware of this because uh, several years ago, before we started this podcast... I had run into his autobiography somewhere in a bookstore in a library. And when we were launching this podcast and explaining the concept to people, this came up in the back of my mind. And I've, I've put it off. So apologies, Randy. I've put it off a little bit because, you know, this is a big story. There's a lot of moving parts to this. But I, what I'm going to try to do today is boil it down to sort of two main characters um, and that's what happens in Tommy James' autobiography, which, of course, is going to be a big source text of this. We'll talk about that. There's a lot of books involved in my research. There's, there's quite a bit of writing about this period because this is in the shady period of the record business, um, which I guess, as we often say on this show, all periods of the record business are a little shady, but this is when it was really shady. Um, yeah. So, yeah, you, you did us a good job of mentioning some of the hits. What are some of the other Tommy James hits that you, uh, um, that you love? Oh, uh, I think we're alone now. Yeah, that's an early one for him. Um, 
And they're one of these artists that has not gone down in history with the same respect and renown as a lot of folks. Like, I don't feel like if you just walk up to a random person and say, what do you think of Tommy James and the Shondells? I, 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 I don't know that it resonates. Like, if you walked up to somebody and said, what do you think of the Beatles or Zeppelin? Or, you know, they, right. they, they don't have that sort of gravity to them. But, man, did they have the hits and did they have the presence at a certain time? Um, like I would almost be willing to overstate the case by saying that like, if you're just a casual rock fan, you're probably not listening to the show, but if you're just a casual rock fan and you don't know sixties music history in detail, like half the songs, you know, off the top of your head are Beatles and stones. And then the rest of them are Tommy James, (laughs) like like all of the in-between ones are Tommy James and the Shondells. Yeah. Do you know, I always thought crystal blue persuasion was a sleepy, like adult contemporary cheesy like lousy song because I just didn't I didn't dial in dial my head into it for a long time. You know what and that song's once about? I did. I thought it was about LSD. No, so people think it's about meth because it was used in Breaking Bad, right? It, which very effectively used in Breaking Bad. It, it's about right. it's about Jesus. He wrote that song about Crystal his relationship Blue with Persuasion. Jesus. Yeah. So I love that it's been me LSD, someone else meth, <laughs> and you're saying it's Jesus. I'm, I'm just saying that's what Tommy says. I'm not saying what it is. Tommy was a drug addict. Tommy was an alcoholic. He got clean. He found Jesus uh, in the 80s, and things have been very different. But no, he does say that Crystal Blue Persuasion, and he talks a little bit about in his autobiography about how the how faith was always part of his life, but he was never really able to live in a way that anyone would think that, right? And so there is a certain point in his life where he sort of hits rock bottom and he becomes this classic story of I'm going to turn my life around, and he does. Now, let's talk about the effect he had on music, though. Springsteen, Santana, Joan Jett, Prince, Tom Jones, Billy Idol, Kelly Clarkson, and Cher have all recorded covers of Tommy James songs. And Tiffany. And Tiffany. (laughs) Uh, Tommy's songs have been in 60 movies and on 53 TV show soundtracks. He sold an estimated 100 million records, and we've already talked about some of the dozen top 10 hits that do include Crimson and Clover, I Think We're Alone Now, Mirage, Moni Moni, Sweet Cherry Wine, Crystal Blue Persuasion, and of course, the one we're going to talk about first, Hanky Panky. Oh, sorry. Why didn't I mention that first? With that resume, why doesn't he have the respect? Do you think you have any theories on the lack of respect here? I don't like where was his PR and what did he what was his image and what did, how did they well, sell Tommy? See, so that's sort of, you're 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 getting there. Like my core conjecture is that the tale I'm about to unwind has something to do with why his why his reputation hasn't held up. And it it's not really can his I, fault. Can I insert dun, dun, Okay, buckle in and get ready for this is honestly one of the wildest rides we have ever covered on this show. Excited, dude. 
Okay. Tommy James. It's not actually his name. He's, he's Tommy Jackson, I believe, is what he's born. Uh, Dayton, Ohio. Spends most of his childhood in Niles, Michigan. Lives in a hotel, not because he's destitute, but because his parents run it. And he gets obsessed with the jukebox in the hotel bar. Which is, yeah, yeah I mean, that's a good place to start, right? Amazing. Tell me. Tell me your first encounter with a jukebox that you remember. Uh, my first encounter with the jukebox was at the recreation center where I used to swim when I was in like elementary school, like kindergarten, first grade. So, but there's that. And then the Pizza Hut, which was where I always wanted to go. Like eventually, once I met my wife, I was like, I got to take you to Pizza Hut because this is what I always wanted to do. It's take like, a girl to Pizza so, Hut. Mine was Applebee's. How weird is that? I was like, this is just the era in which we were growing up, probably. But I thought going to Applebee's when I was like 17 was like super dope. Like that's what you did when you had a girl. That's why I didn't date a lot of girls. Cause they were like, don't go with that guy. That guy's just gonna take you to Applebee's. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. No, there weren't many choices. Actually there were there were very there were no choices. There was no McDonald's. But anyway, that that jukebox, Rock You Like a Hurricane by the Scorpions and Still Loving You by the Scorpions. There were like Multiple tracks. No wonder you wanted to artist. take a girl there. Jeez. Hey, <laughs> hey, babe, you like that deep dish? <sighs> Scorpion soundtrack and everything that's happening. Good God. No parking on the dance floor. Uh, so, <laughs> what, 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 back to Tommy James. Back so, to Tommy James. This dude gets inspired by a jukebox, much in the same way as young Squire Murdoch, and he <laughs> forms a band. And he plays music around the area when he's in high school. And he, like, he has modest success, right? Plus, he finds a job in a, in a record store. There's this great spot in his autobiography where he talks about the, which I've never heard anyone describe this before, the ad campaign that the record label did for the Beatles when they were coming to America. Have you ever heard huh. this? No, no. So they no. sent, because he worked in the record store at the time, and they, they sent a different cutout that was the back of their heads. And I think they slowly turned around or something because it was like a series of them. And it, it just said, like, the Beatles are coming. And it just had the, the mop top back of their heads. And then they slowly, like, turned around, as I think, or something like that. But maybe it was their profile on week two, and then it was their faces. Wow. The, yeah, I've never heard that before. Amazing. I thought that was no. so cool. Uh, yeah, that's just totally, sort of a little totally nugget that he way. drops in when he's, when he's talking about his life. Um, early on but okay so we're, we're gonna skip all over that because there's a lot to cover today he while he's working in this music store he meets some of the right people and, and this local guy who is recording some songs in a radio station one town over and they haven't found a song that really breaks them out of the local circuit they do one they, they, they do one little single that people are sort of passing around right but again we talk about this a lot at this period in history right the early 60s where everything's very 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 local and maybe regional, but there's all these things happening in individual markets, right? You're not, it's hard to break beyond that because, you know, you don't have things like the internet. And so they're, they're doing okay locally. They're still in high school. And Tommy one night goes to see, actually one afternoon on a Sunday, he goes to see some friends of his play at a bar in Southman, Indiana. And these guys cool. play this song midway through their set. And he, he describes it as like everybody just starts freaking out and running to the dance floor and behaving like it's Saturday night, not Sunday afternoon. And Tommy's really intrigued. So he goes up to his buddies after the show and he's like, what is that song you played? And they're like, oh my God, listen, we were in this other, some other podunk Indiana town a few weeks ago and we saw a band play and they played that song sort of. 
And it got this same insane reaction. So we just sort of figured out what they were doing and worked it into our set. But we don't know where it came from. So we're just piecing together the parts we remember. And the, the main thing we remember is this key phrase, my baby does the hanky-panky. And it's like, you know, I mean, if you've heard hanky-panky, it's like very basic, right? So they, they, they get the idea of it, but they don't know all the words. So again, good place to stop down and remind you about this idea of song wars. Remember, Joel Selvin was on the show in episode 42, Beach Boys versus Jan and Dean, and he gave us a primer on this. Do you want to take a stab at refreshing our memories on what song wars were? No, you'll be better at this than than I will, for sure. I mean, basically, the music business is regional at this point, like I just mentioned, and so the same songs get done by a bunch of bands in different areas, but sometimes, by the time they get to the record labels, they're just done by studio bands with fake names because people hear a good song, and then they co-opt it for another market because the recording from New York is not going to get to L.A., so they just have people, and they call them the crocodiles or something, and they throw them in a studio, and they record the song. And it's how labels are like making money. Bottom line, there are lots of versions of the same songs during this period. Um, For instance, one collection that is in regular rotation in my office studio for the past several weeks has been this great one. Uh, It's a cutout collection from the British record label Charlie that they put out like a decade ago, and it's called Boys Can Be Mean. And it features 60 tracks from 60s era girl groups, which is super fun. But the wow. songs, the songs don't always match the artists, right? So they're songs like "Money," that's what I want, and "Do Wah Diddy," but they're not done by the people that you're used to hearing them done by, right. like Barrett Strong, right? It's like the yeah. Fabulettes doing "Money," that's what I want, and the Jelly Beans doing "Do Wah Diddy." It's just all these like almost fake bands. So I give you all that setup to say that when Tommy James hears this song "Hanky Panky" in the fall of '64, right after he's you know, a little later in the year after he's experienced the Beatles coming to America, he goes to his friend at the record store and he says, do you know anything about this song, Hanky Panky? Because that's like the only words we know about it. And the guy has to go searching, pre-internet. So he's digging through his 30-pound retailer's guide, and this is what he finds out. There is indeed a song called Hanky Panky. And it was the B-side to a song called That Boy John. That Boy John was done by a group called the Raindrops, which to my point, the Raindrops were a brill-building songwriting team, a husband and wife. Okay. Now, this single was released in the fall of 63, and it got pulled off the market almost immediately. Why do you think it in 63, November, it would have gotten pulled off the market if it was called That Boy John? Oh, it's because of Kennedy. Yeah. Yeah, the Kennedy assassination. So they just yes. deem it too sensitive to put this song, which which seems funny, but we've done an episode about what happened after 9-11, right? Where it's like people went through their database and was like, this song says airplane, get rid of it, right? So, right, like, yeah. I guess it was sort of the same thing. So let's not play the letter by the box tops. Right, exactly. So they figure out that basically this song is dead. So Tommy's like, game on. So he goes to his band, and they work up a version of Hanky Panky, which is basically an impression of an impression of the original song. <laughs> it's like a musical yeah. game of telephone. Yeah, and if you listen to it, like <clears throat> it's a very elementary, like like blues riff. And the lyrics, A and B. Yeah, he, he talks about how they make I up the lyrics. Walking. Yeah, yeah, that's the lyric. He's like, we just sort of yelled at each other, like, what should we say here? I saw a walk on it. Yeah. 
my baby does the hanky panky. The backing vocals are great, though. I saw her walking on down the line. Yeah. There's that. There's that. Dude, that is hot. That is hot AF. That is so cool. <laughs> There's so much you're about to learn about that recording. So Tommy gets the band back into this radio station recording studio where they had pressed a version of uh, this other song, right? And... It's really funny because when they get access, this is a thing I don't have in the notes, but it's in his book and it's worth mentioning because we're both old radio guys. So <laughs> the guy he meets when he's working at the record store who ha- who finds out he's in a band and, and he's like, oh yeah, I have this radio station studio. You can come record over here, right? And so he they, they load up like on a Sunday and they go see this guy. And when they come in, the guy's like, oh yeah, I'll record whatever you want. But first, you have to record my song. <laughs> so it was like a bait and switch. Like, like he wanted his song recorded by a band was the whole thing. But he like didn't tell them that until they were in the studio. And so they're and like, "I want to know. I want to know what that song." Oh, was. dude. So I like I said, it's not in my notes, but the, I I believe it was something called like. <laughs> It was like literally called like Yellow Robin or something. It was like, it, Tommy James says it was like the most god awful saccharine piece of garbage. And they were like instantly deflated because they were like, I can't believe we have to put out this garbage thing that this guy is going to then float around local radio or whatever. And he said like nobody liked it. And so then the next song they put out is is how they got traction locally, so it was no big deal, but the, they had to go through this whole charade of putting out this guy's song. But, at, like, total typical skeezy radio person where he's like, hey, come to my, hey, come to my, uh, come to my radio studio. Can and where is he recording this again? Like, which radio? So, like, Niles, Michigan. So this is in Michigan, so yeah, this, this is where the song breaks. Yeah, so, so everything happens in Michigan. So, okay. Now, when they record Hanky Panky, it is a local smash, b- very briefly. But all the success is just regional, and it's short-lived. And Tommy's trying to finish high school, and he finds out that his high school girlfriend's pregnant <laughs> all at the same time. Wow. So he ends up winding down the band, and he, he gets a retail job. He's going to work in a hardware store. He ends up getting a call around that time from the guy who was in that other band that they stole Hanky Panky from. Yeah. Like the guy's like, hey, it's me. And he's like, dude, this guy's going to ream me because he's probably heard that we, you know, like had a little bit of success here with Hanky Panky. That's not what the guy wants. The guy's like, dude, my band broke up and I need to form a new band so I can stay on the road because I've booked these like low profile gigs around the region. And so Tommy's like, I'm not going to work in a hardware store. And he goes and joins this group where they play out like six nights a week just and they and they end up after a short time, just basically becoming a house band back in South Bend. He's been on the road for six months. He comes back, and he's like hiding out because he doesn't want to know people know that he's failed. And he gets a call at the house, and they're like, Tommy, you're back. They're like, that radio guy you recorded music with, he's looking for you. You need to call him. So he calls that guy from the radio station, and his name is Jack Douglas. And Jack is like, Tommy, you have a number one record in Pittsburgh. 
Remember, an easy way to support the show is to head over to Patreon. Patreon.com allows creators like us to take financial thank yous from you. Uh, and we'll, don't worry, we'll give you stuff in return. How about uh, scripts from the show or maybe you want some special bonus episodes? Uh, you can get all that stuff when you check out patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. Thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. And go ahead and leave us a review too. That'd be huge. That doesn't cost you anything except, you know, like a little bit of time and you're going to have to use the exclamation point a lot in the review because you're so excited. Okay, that's it. So, your finger may get a little sore, but other than that, I think you're going to be fine. Uh, review the show at iTunes or anywhere else that you are able to download it and let other people know how much you enjoy digging into Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories with us. We're proud to have you. So lucky that we get to do this every week, and we appreciate your love in return. Now, what the hell happened? I don't know. I mean, normally it's, you know, it's a record guy or a DJ, like someone, it's like a referral, like someone floats you a record. What happened here? So they did that small pressing of Hanky Panky. And somehow one of those records ends up in a discount bin in Pittsburgh. <laughs> it's in a store? It Yeah. No, like, I mean, not even a store. Like, I think it's in like... Yeah, I get the the impression that it was like in a pawn shop or something. Like it was in somewhere where a guy was digging for like baskets of records because he's a dance promoter. It's this guy Bob Mack, and he's a local a local dance promoter. And he finds this stack of records and he starts playing them at dances to see you know if anything hits. And when he puts it on at a Pittsburgh dance, it has the same effect it's been having when when a band plays it live. People lose their minds. Yeah. It's crazy. Demand got so loud for it that Bob Mack goes to a local distributor and has has it pressed again on his own dime and starts selling it in stores. So he doesn't know what it is, right? Like, it it was just a local... It's like finding a cassette or something with something scribbled on it, practically, right? It's like barely a professional item. When When he presses it, it starts flying off the shelves locally, and it makes it to the radio station, and again, when they played on the radio, same response. And it organically goes number one in the city of Pittsburgh. That's, yeah. The distributor looks at the original record. And the only thing that Jack Douglas, the guy from the radio station with the song about the bird, had done to this album is he had put his name on it and he'd put Niles, Michigan. <laughs> and so the distributor's like, how am I going to find a Jack Douglas in Niles, Michigan? He calls the record store. And he, hey, do you know a guy named Jack Douglas? Because I got this record with his name on it. And they're like, yeah, we know Jack Douglas. And they make the connection. And so (laughs) what immediately ensues, I know this sounds totally made up. What immediately ensues is Tommy and Jack drive to Pittsburgh. And they meet up with this dance promoter, Bob Mack. And the guy basically, from the go, puts him on like a media tour in Pittsburgh. TV, radio, anyone who will talk to him. And the next weekend he has to return with the band to do a live performance. But remember Tommy's band doesn't exist anymore. Right? Yes. He has a week. So they have to recreate the band. Now, as you already pointed out, Hanky Panky, not a complicated song. And that's really the only song anyone has any interest in hearing. They play this gig and Tommy says they basically just play Hanky Panky for like 30 minutes. (laughs) 30 minutes. Oh, that's funny. I was going to ask if they bookended uh, 
Like I saw Europe one time play and they opened and closed with the final Dude, countdown. I love that story, mostly because you went to see Europe play, but also because they just didn't give a damn. Like they were like, cool. We got this song, and you guys want to hear it, so hear it now, hear it later. And yeah, to an extent, that's sort of what Tommy James does here. They all realize, and when I say they all, I mean Jack Douglas, Bob Mack, and Tommy, the people who are sort of making this happen now in Pittsburgh, they realize that they have a very short amount of time to make hay, right? Like, they've got to do something quickly to capitalize on this. Pittsburgh is a big market, but again, everything's sort of regional. So they're like, we got to go to New York. Now, there are different versions of the story when it comes to what happens in New York. There's Tommy's version. And as I mentioned, there's a handful of texts that I used creating this episode. And one of them is the Tommy James book, Me, the Mob, and the Music. And I'm going to talk a lot about it. I will tell you. It probably now ranks among my all-time favorites. I had low Get expectations because, out. dude, it is wow. one of the greatest books of all time. I mostly I thought it was going to have a lot of like this swagger and BS to it. You know, like when you meet, like I keep I keep picking on old radio guys, but you know when you meet old radio guys and they're like, yeah, you know, I broke that record and in Pittsburgh, and then I did this, and then I hung out with uh, with Dylan backstage, and then Springsteen called me one time and wanted me to hear this song. You know, like, there's just a, like, I thought that's what it was going to be. That is not what it is, right? Tommy James still, uh, he wrote the book in 2010. Uh, even at that point, when he was in his 60s, was, was very sort of in awe of what had happened to him, right? Like there's, it's much more like wide-eyed wonder than it is, uh, you know, cynicism or any sort of like braggadocio, right? And so it makes it a really fun read. It's also the most screen-ready rock story I've ever seen. And I I am past the point of saying that things should be adapted to film, but I 100% hope and pray this gets adapted into a movie because, oh my goodness, it's so ready for it. Now, Another text I consulted was Godfather of the Music Business by Richard Carlin. And we're going to talk a little bit about who that's about and what that is. And then there's another book that I was given years ago by a good friend of mine, Tom, called Hitmen by Frederick Dannon, which looks at a wider lens at the record industry of the 50s and 60s and corruption and payola and all that stuff. But it's funny because it's a time capsule of its own. It it was written in 1990. So it, it has a lot to say about the scandals that were happening in radio and records in the sixties without the knowledge that it all happens again in the nineties. Wow. So it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of funny for that reason. Now let's talk about New York. These books have different versions of what happens in New York. And knowing that some of these stories are coming straight from Tommy, we have to remember that they're going to be colored by him. But again, I think for the most part, Tommy's story doesn't read as too fantastical. Tommy says that he and Bob Mack fly to New York and they meet this guy, Chuck Rubin, who Bob knows, who works in a talent agency there. And the three of them start going from label to label. They go to Columbia, they go to Karma Sutra, they go to RCA, they go to Atlantic. And the same scene plays out at every one. They're like, this is number one in Pittsburgh. They play it. Everyone's like, oh my God, we want it. They write down an offer on a piece of paper and hand it to him. Tommy and his crew say, cool, we're going to call you tomorrow. And then they go to the next one. And then they go to the next one. So this happens over and over all day. End of the day, they get to Roulette Records. The president of Roulette Records isn't there. So they leave a record with the receptionist and they move on. And they're not even thinking about it because they have all these other offers. 
They go back to the hotel. They go to sleep. And now I'm going to read to you from Tommy James' book, Me, the Mob, and the Music. This is what he says happens next. The next morning, a frantic phone call from Chuck Rubin got us out of bed in a hurry. He told us that every record company we had gone to see yesterday, the ones that had been so eager to sign us to a deal, had inexplicably called him up to tell him they were going to pass on the record. Hmm. One of them, Jerry Wexler from Atlantic, admitted that he had received a call from Morris Levy, the president of Roulette, who informed him, This is my fucking record. Leave it alone. Red Schwartz, Roulette's national promotion man, had listened to the record, and when Morris Levy came back, he made sure Morris listened to it, too. They both went wild for the record. Morris was on a first-name basis with everyone in the music business, and as we later discovered, called each executive the following morning and made it clear that Hanky Panky would be best off at Roulette. And no one disagreed. We had heard rumors about Morris Levy and Roulette and how the company was quote-unquote connected and how Morris was known as the godfather of the music business. But the events of that morning were stunning and a little scary. When I say that name, Morris Levy, do you know anything about him? No, I don't. Who is, do you know yeah. much about him? So this is that, that third text, godfather of the music business. He, let me just show you the cover of this book. I know this doesn't do anything for the listening audience, but uh, it gives you all you need to know when you look at this guy's face. <laughs> He was known as the godfather of the music business, okay? And now, like I said, there are other accounts of Tommy getting assigned to roulette that make it sound less intense, okay? There's a version that says that the roulette deal was already in motion before the guys ever went to Pittsburgh, and that shopping the single was sort of a misguided attempt at playing the pool. And there's also intel that Columbia passed, and roulette just actually made a really good offer. So, like, much more normal. Red Schwartz, the guy who Tommy mentions above, who is a, it becomes really good friends with Tommy, he tells a story that he made this deal in Pittsburgh before anybody came to New York, and that Morris was actually mad at him about the whole thing at first because of the way that he did the financial arrangement on it. Now, regardless of the exact details, the fact is that this very much does begin Tommy James's highly dysfunctional relationship with Morris Levy. And it's a relationship that's going to define Tommy James in the rest of his career. And it's probably the relationship that keeps Tommy James out of the same breath as the Beatles and the Stones and Led Zepp and Fleetwood Mac and whoever else you'd want to add to that list. Wow. Totally fascinating. Look at this diabolical pair. (laughs) Here's the phrase I'm going to come back to a lot dysfunctional father-son relationship, daddy issues. It's very extreme with with Tommy James and Morris Levy. I'm going to borrow from the book Hitman here, okay? This is, this is from Frederick Dannon's book. In 1957, Variety dubbed Morris Levy the octopus of the music industry. So far reaching were his tentacles. Three decades later, another newsman called him the, quote, godfather of the American music business. His power had not diminished. Morris Levy started Roulette Records in 1956 after a decade in nightclubs. He owned the world-famous Birdland. I don't know if you know anything about Birdland. No way. Yeah. So that was his big first thing, is that he owned Birdland. Uh, Roulette was one of several independent record companies that put out rock and roll. Guys like Frankie Lyman, Buddy Knox, Jackie and the Starlights. Hmm. Okay, so that's all from Hitman. Now, in the 50s, there are a bunch of small labels in the game. Right? 
But when they have success, big labels come in and swoop them up. So this is a pattern that happens. So by the time you reach the 60s, the small guys are gone. But not Morris. Because Morris won't sell. And here's another passage from Hitman that explains Morris's empire building pretty succinctly. Morris and his power came from copyrights. He understood early in the game that a hit song is an annuity. It earns money year after year for its owner. We've seen this before, right? People know in copyrights. We This sounds a little bit like what we saw with Saul Zanes, right? Just sort of figuring out how he could own publishing. Right, and sometimes you just, you, you own the artist. You own the work. And, you know, there's some artists that have been floating around like, not owning any of their work at all. Well, and like we'll get into exactly. We'll get into. We won't get into all the specifics of this. There's just so much stuff about Morris Levy, and about his business. But like, again, this echoes Saul's ants a little bit to where a lot of this comes down to this cutout business, which is an old term for making collections and selling them back to the public. So having the publishing rights for a whole bunch of songs that you can slap onto a collection, like Voice Can Be Mean, Girl Hits of the 60s, and then you get a little bit of money every time for every single song that sells. This collection that I've been referencing, right? And this is like way out of the period because this actually came out 10 or 15 years ago. But it literally does have 60 songs on it, right? So there's technically like 60 copyrights tied up into this thing. So that was part of the business model is own, 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 right? Hoard it all in and then repurpose and resell and repackage and all that sort of stuff, right? It's not the fun side of the music business where we, we, you know, we're spending time talking, you know, spending hours talking about one album or something. This album's amazing, right? Like that's not how these guys think about the music business, right? It's just another commodity and they're just trying to package it up and sell it back out. Yeah. It's, it's sad when you know, if you're dialed into what Brian's saying, when you see an artist that's like a, you know, it's a legendary artist, you know, and you see that just the greatest hits just continue to get repackaged over and over. It's the same songs. There's nothing different. It just has like a different name and different art. And it's just the same tunes over and over again. Yeah. And, and you realize it's not like, Oh, this next piece of art we're going to make. It's like, we got to put those 10 songs back on something else. And there's all sorts of, if you just dig through, uh, you know, bins of old media and music like I do all the time, you see these labels, right? These old razor light and all these like different like fly by night labels that have reissued stuff over and over and over. And you know the difference between Ryko reissuing something and some cutout that's being sold through discount stores like Big Lots or something. It, you know, it's, it's a different game. And so that's what you, you know, sometimes you'll notice like the album art looks really cheap or whatever. It's all part of that thing. So anyway, by the 80s, just to give you some perspective on this, Morris will own 30,000 copyrights and be worth $75 million. (laughs) And of course, with all that money, he gets himself into other things. There's this whole thing where he buys a bunch of record stores for a while called Strawberries. Did you ever go to a Strawberries record store? No, that's a new one to me, man. They were I don't think they were probably anywhere where you were. They were more East Coast. But let's talk about the Godfather and mob reputation, though, and, and where that all comes from. In general, first and foremost, I mean, I think it's a fair statement to say, and you, you probably know this, the mob has always been a little mixed up in the music business. And, this goes pre-rock and roll. I mean, this goes back to big bands, right? Post-World War II jukeboxes. Did you know, I mean, this is a slight digression. 
But you know that the whole jukebox business, we were talking about jukeboxes earlier, that, that's a mob thing. Think about, think about how easy it is to make money that disappears through a jukebox. It's a cash business, and it's easy to manipulate. Oh, it's like a car wash. It, yeah, dude, it's for money laundering. If, if it was the 30s, uh, our boy Walter White would have been running that money through jukeboxes. There Man, were, I, I'd never thought about jukeboxes. There Man, were mob ties all the way back to the companies making the jukeboxes. <laughs> Let me give you an example. 1954, the country has half a million jukeboxes in it. A little bit more than that. One company called Century Music owns and operates 100,000 of those. Okay? So like 20%. That company, Jake Guzik, Dennis Cooney. Mobsters. It's all a front for them. Once you control the jukeboxes, though, think about this. Not only are you able to do money laundering, mm-hmm. you can decide what goes into them. Mm-hmm. And then you can make and break careers. And then when a new medium like radio comes along and it's looking for what they should be playing, where are they going to look? They're going to look for what's playing inside the jukebox. Wow. So you can, you can see how the mafia has been in on the ground floor of this thing, right, in America. We, this is the, uh, the, the thing we don't want to talk about. We talk about the music business and how people treat everybody like crap. Yeah, dude. It started, it started as the mob. Of course. It was, this, was never, this was always about fast cash. This was never about treating people with respect. Yeah. I never saw anything like saying mob activity or whatever, but I've def- I definitely saw some criminal activity for sure. It's like just in a radio station? No. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> Oh, oh! Now, now you're now you're feeling like you're going to incriminate yourself. All right, I got you. Wink, wink. Just yeah, just with talking about the entire industry type. I've seen some things that were um, clearly to me. I was shocked that I just well, wasn't ready for. Let, let me let me put it this way, and maybe I should have said this earlier. Yeah, Sopranos fans out there, the character Hesh Rapkin, that's that character is based on Morse Levy. Oh wow! Now wow. he's never officially in a crime family. But he's very friendly with one. Let's talk about his childhood for just a second. Again, I said, I'm narrowing the Tommy James story down to these two characters. It's important that we really understand Morris Levy. He has a rough upbringing. Dad and brother die of pneumonia when he's young. He's on state welfare with his mom. There is this crazy story in the Hitman book that is almost an aside. Like, it's just a paragraph or two. Where when he's a kid, it's unclear how old, but like less than 12, I think, he assaults a teacher for making fun of him in class about being poor. And when I say assaults, he rips her wig off and pours ink on her head and then like puts the wig back on. That's yeah. That's, that's considered assault. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This illustrates both his drive not to be caught in wanting, right? Like not to be perceived as lesser than, and also his willingness to take matters into his own hands. When he's a teen, he starts working in nightclubs, in the hat check and in the coat check. And then he gets into this whole thing about taking pictures. And this is where he starts to meet mob guys. Now, cutting into the cliff notes, the long story short is that he eventually gets, in, gets into running and owning his own nightclubs with the help of these old friends that he met when he was a young teenager and their finances. And then he parlays that into the record industry. Now, we won't get into it here. But another huge intersection with rock history that Levy has comes really early in his career. He he makes himself the manager of a certain radio DJ named Alan Freed. <laughs> wow, the manager of Alan. There's nothing to see here. 
do do we need to do an Alan Freed episode? Like the Alan Freed yeah. story is insane. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, yeah. you can tell just by what I've told you about Morris Levy, the fact that Morris Levy is involved. Alan Freed invents the term rock and roll while they're like eating hamburgers, right? Uh, because they couldn't call the, his show whatever they wanted to call it, which was something stupid. And he's like, they, and he's like, oh, they can go call it rock and roll, and everyone's like, okay, cool. And that's why we that's why we call this rock and roll bedtime stories. It's because freaking Alan Freed eating cheeseburgers or whatever. But and now we've got to his manager, his manager who has a bigger effect, meh, maybe a bigger effect on rock and roll, but like in a much less known way. Um, okay. Do you know New York crime families? Like, if this was like Trivial Pursuit and I said name five in New York, could you do it? No, no. Could you name any? I, uh, I don't think so. Okay. No. Here's, there's five to know. Gambino, probably the one you might have guessed. Yeah. Uh, Lucese, Bonanno, Colombo, and then the Genovese family. And the Genovese family is the one that Morris and subsequently Tommy James get all tangled up in. Now, Genovese family, like most mob families, do some things that are legitimate, like New York garbage collection, for instance, and the Teamsters. They do a ton of not-so-legal crap, like craps, or illegal gambling at large, uh, loan sharking, drugs, prostitution, you know, the good stuff, as we call it. Uh, so, in Tommy James's book, there's all these stories of him slowly catching on to what's happening at Roulette Records, right? Like, he gets it pretty instantly that when all of a sudden all the other deals evaporate, that something's amiss. But every time he comes into the Roulette Records offices, there's just these guys hanging out, and he can't really figure out what they do. Uh, huh. Who are those guys? Also, he says the IRS shows up all the time. <laughs> and there's this guy who just has lots and lots of paperwork to show everyone. And, and and like the IRS comes and they're like, we need paperwork, and this guy just drowns them in paperwork. <laughs> like it's like an ongoing bit in the book. <laughs> like, yeah, the guy's giving more paperwork to the IRS, so they'll get lost in the books. Uh, wow. It's all it's all pretty epic. But to be honest, as you just heard with the jukebox rundown, shadiness in the record industry at this time is pretty rampant. I've already mentioned the Saul Zantz connection, which you can go back and listen to the Fogarty versus Fantasy episode for that. Tommy realizes he's in over his head, but. He's also having success from the very beginning. So how does this play out? Right? Because he comes in with a hit. And and the other thing about this is that Roulette Records, there's a Count Basie connection early to Morris Levy. So he's had some success with Count Basie. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. It is cool. But he doesn't have, I mean, there's not like a, a stable of artists. I feel like a lot of times on this show, like sort of like when I read the list at the beginning of the show of all the people who have covered Tommy James, it was like this huge who's who. Usually in this case, you'd be like, oh, so this record label had Tommy James and no, it was like Tommy James and then a whole bunch of like quasi either useless or fake bands or just like a few people who like had a hit or two and then disappeared, right? It was it's yeah. there's really nobody else of note that comes out of Roulette Records, and like I said, that's why it's strange because everybody else at this point has gotten eaten up, all the other record labels, but Roulette stays around because of these mob connections. So now, what me and the mob, the book does so well is really focus in on this relationship that Tommy and Morris have. And what you get from this perspective is to see how the presence of the mob hangs right at the periphery for Tommy. It's just enough a factor to keep him putting up with 
what is very clearly abusive behavior from Morris for years and years and years and years. Now, the real question, though, to get into the good stuff is, how does the mob connection inform Morris's action? And yes, there is, go on. There is all sorts of shady stuff happening, right? Taking cast-offs from other labels and then getting into selling records through TV, TV infomercials. There's like a whole other episode I might, be, I might work on about that whole thing involving one of the biggest artists of all time and a TV infomercial. Um, there's really shady stuff like setting up record labels that only put out garbage so that he can warehouse the records and then take a tax write-off. Like, there's literally a, a just a brief note where Tommy says in the book that there's, like, a bunch of people who were, like, high school bands where Roulette would press one song by them, and they, were like, never knew that it happened. And then they would put it in the records that they had they had pressed 25,000 of them, but they'd only pressed 2,000, and then they'd put them in a warehouse where nobody would go count, and then they'd take the tax write off for 25,000. Oh, man. That's some dirty I mean, business. I don't have the time or probably even the ability to explain the nuances of all this crap, but just know there's a lot of shady business happening all the way around. But the way the mob connection manifests the most for Tommy is actually in what doesn't manifest for Tommy, which is money. So Tommy doesn't get paid. I, I read off the string of hits and the stats earlier. Tommy is a monster star for a while, and he does not get Murdoch. He does not get royalties. <sighs> At all, like, has he, when did he sue to try to get it? How long has it taken oh, him to try oh, to recoup? Oh, buddy. So, he gets to tour, and he gets endorsements. And he can do merch deals. Like, he isn't destitute. But Morris doesn't pay out to his artists. This is such an open secret that Tommy claims that early in his career there, he learns, there's this joke they all say around the roulette offices, that the quietest place on earth is accounts payable. <laughs> Obviously, this creates wow. a little tension in a lot of ways. And I'll skip ahead over a lot of the meat to say that at one point, and this actually happens way later, but it's so interesting. At one point, Tommy gets fed up. There's several times where Tommy gets fed up and tries to deal with this and then sort of has to back away. Or there's like there's always this weird domineering father aspect, right, to Morris Levy. Yeah. But one time, Tommy actually gets his accountant to come up with a way to figure out how much money he was owed. Because Morris, obviously, is not giving up spreadsheets. Uh, so they talk to the, they decide, you know, who isn't controlled by the mob. Like they actually look and they're like, okay, the printing factory mob control, the, like they look at all these different places, right? The, the guy's pressing the records. They have connections to Morris directly, but the place printing the labels doesn't. So they go to the place printing the labels and they get all the orders from them, not from roulette side. And they, they, take all, okay, here's how many we printed, which means these went on this many records, which means we sold this many records, and the number they come back with in the mid-60s, mind you, is that Morris rightfully owes Tommy $40 million. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Think about that number for a minute. Think about that number in 1965 or 66 or 67. I can't believe he got ripped off. Now, when you know what, Morris says when they confront him with this. So at one point, that accountant goes to Morris, and he's like, you owe Tommy $40 million. And he literally, the, the quote that has come back through history is that Morris literally says something to the extent of like, sleep with the fishes, or <laughs> like, I mean, it's literally oh. that, it's that cliche. Like he says something about like, yeah, you know, concrete boots or whatever. Now, 
the thing is, though, that people knew this wasn't just a bluster. And here's, here's one of the ways that they knew. We're going to take a right turn real quickly down an alley. A dark, dark alley. Have you ever heard of the name Jimmy Rogers? Not the country guy. Um, then no. There's two, there's two Jimmy Rogers. There's the country legend. And then there's this like pop guy from the 50s. So I'm talking about the pop guy from the 50s. No, I don't know. So let's, let's hear what... Tell, hit me with him. He had a deal with Morris in roulette pre-Tommy James. And he wasn't getting paid either. But he fought oh. back. Court cases. Long story short, in 67, which is right when Tommy's coming up and taking off, Rogers has a mysterious accident that involves an off-duty cop. To hear the cop tell it, Jimmy Rogers was drunk and fell out of his car and hit his head. To hear Jimmy Rogers tell it, the cop and two other cops who came out of nowhere beat the crap out of him. Jimmy Rogers never fully recovers from the head injuries. And the head injuries are so severe, he physically loses his ability to sing. Oh, that stinks. It's never been proven that roulette had anything to do with it. But, yeah. eh. There you go. There you go. Maybe. What? So, how does Tommy handle all this pressure? Some days are better than others. Uh, In his autobiography, there's there's this telling story about, uh, first of all, he's, from the very beginning of his career, there's this weird aside where he's dating this girl whose uncle or father, I think it's an uncle, is like in the pharmaceutical industry. And he keeps thinking that he can help out the young, uh, these young kids that are, you know, on their own in New York by sending them samples. (laughs) But like half the stuff is like, you know, I, I think, I don't know if it's FDA approved, but it's like, you know, 1960s medicine. So he's sending them diet pills in the mail. Right. (laughs) And so Tommy's first sort of pill popping experiences with these diet pills, which are basically amphetamines, right? Yeah. Right. So he gets, he gets hooked on amphetamines. He's very open about this. He gets hooked on amphetamines early, like a little bit after hanky panky early. And then it's like with him the whole time. So he's on pills all the time. And this is a point of contention between him and Morris as dark and devious as Morris is. He doesn't like drugs. Like, he likes to make money from drugs, maybe, or or at least, like, tangentially, but he doesn't want his artists to be on drugs. So that's a point right. of contention. And at one point, Tommy starts buying guns. Like, he starts getting really paranoid about everything, as you would if you're in this sort of abusive relationship. And there, it gets out to Morris that Tommy has bought all these guns, and Morris shows up at his door with a bunch of, like, bodyguards, and they're like, nope, we're taking the guns for your own good. And they come in and they take all his guns. And they're like, we're going to take them to Morris's farm upstate. And you can come shoot him at Morris's farm, but you can't have him here. Because it's illegal for him to own any of that. He doesn't have a license for any of it. Wow. So I, that comes back. So hang on to that weird tidbit. Now, everyday tensions are high between Morris and Tommy. And then in the early 1970s, there's this whole dust up within the Genovese crime family. And it has to do with... Tommy Eboli. And Tommy Eboli is Morris's closest partner. He's in the office all the time at Roulette. He's like a character in the book, almost. And he, like, took a loan from the Gambinos in a power play, and then he doesn't pay his money back, and it's a whole thing. And suddenly, Tommy James comes into Roulette one day, and Morris is gone. And they're like, oh, yeah, uh, he had to go to Spain. 
and that's like a cover story, he had fled the country. He's gone for six months. What? And this is where the book is really insightful into the dysfunctional relationship between Morris and Tommy because Tommy feels totally abandoned. He's like pissed off about this, that he's gotten dragged into this and then Morris can just pick up and leave, right? Wow. It only gets... so messed up. Okay. Did you know that Tommy James had a country album in 1971? No, I didn't. Okay. You want to know how we got that country album? His lawyer calls him and he's like, dude, you got to leave. You got to leave New York. It's not safe because if they can't get to Morris, they're going to get to what makes Morris's money and that is you. So you need to go. And Gosh. they send him to Nashville and he lives in Nashville in exile and creates a country record, which is a real thing you can go find. Wow. How, how is it? Just cliff notes. <laughs> it's, it's actually supposed to be pretty good. He had like a lot of good Nashville guys on it. Like hee haw guys. So like the like the Ween country record or like a <laughs> real country record. Like it's it's <laughs> funny, ha ha funny. No, it's, it's I I think it's I, I mean obviously it's not like you're hearing it in shopping malls, but like I think people traditionally music people think it was it was decent. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So Morris returns to New York eventually after like six months, but Tommy's pissed and he's on pills and. <laughs> Then that guy, Tommy Eboli, who had sort of gotten him into all this trouble, I mean, he was the guy inside the family, but the guy who had caused this dust up, he gets killed in a hit, like after Morris gets back, and things are just never the same. And Tommy comes unglued. He tells this story of storming into Morris's office one day and just telling him to shoot him right there. He's like, listen, like you, you owe me all this money. I made you. And of course, Morris is like, I made you. And he's like, no, I made you. And they're screaming at each other. And he's like, you know, I'll destroy you. You'll never work again. And Tommy's like, fine, shoot me now. Just kill me right now. Kill me right here. Come on. I dare you. They get into one of those. (laughs) This is so exciting. (laughs) (laughs) And Tommy storms out, goes home, and basically doesn't talk to Morris again. Morris never calls him. Tommy's sick at home for weeks because he's so distraught over all of this. And he's trying to do a calculation on how he gets out of this family. How does he get away from this crime family? Because as long as he's a valuable, he is not going to be able to be free. So the only thing he can figure out how to do is to make himself not valuable. So Tommy James tanks his own career. Oh, wow. And he quits. He quits recording. He quits everything. Morris continues to release the odds and ends he has stored in the vault, but it doesn't last very long. And in 74, he finally releases Tommy mostly from Roulette Records. There's still some publishing stuff that lingers for a while. But holy crap. How does this turn out for these dudes, right? That can't be the end. Well... Tommy eventually, by the end of the 70s, around the same time that Fogarty is fighting with Fantasy, records a little bit for Fantasy Records, which insanely may be the thing that shows you the most how messed up his relationship was with Morris because Fantasy seemed like a good idea. Uh, He has just a few interactions with Morris over the next decade. But in 86, one day, he gets really high and he's proud of some music he wrote and he decides to go see Morris in his office. 
and they get into this whole conversation about give me my own label and Morris is like, yeah, come back. You know, because Morris is like basically not had a hit since Tommy left because this was really his only act. He's still do he's still making tons of money by being shady, but he's you know, he's not he's not been in the spotlight. Right. So then Tommy goes home after this meeting. And three months later, he's watching NBC News when they announce that Morris Levy has been arrested on extortion charges. Oh, man. This gets better because this was the product of a sting operation that had been going on for months. Wow. The FBI had tapped that entire office at Roulette Records, and there's like details about where they put microphones and cameras, like in certain wall hangings and things that were standard pieces of Morris's uh, office that everybody that ever dealt with him knew. Like he had, the, he had, you know, certain signs and weird yeah. things on his wall, and they, they were all tapped. So Tommy realizes there's a file at the FBI on him now because he's been in that office. And he just, this is the thing that pushes him over the edge. At some point, he's gotten his guns back from Morris and he gets all his guns out in his apartment. He's in like his third marriage at this point. And the woman's like, dude, you got to get your crap together. And she goes to bed and he gets his guns out and starts, he opens the kitchen window and starts shooting into his pool. Uh. And the neighbors call the cops. And the thing he's trying to avoid, he comes and gets picked up. He gets taken to jail. So, (laughs) this is where he says is basically rock bottom. Okay? He's blackout drunk shooting his pool. Morris Levy stands trial and is convicted on two counts of conspiracy to commit extortion. But he also gets diagnosed with colon cancer while all this is going on. And the lawyers keep getting him an extension, and he never serves a day. He dies in 1990. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Tommy goes to the Betty Ford Clinic hilariously because he saw an infomercial where somebody said they went to the Betty Ford Clinic. Who was it? Liza Minnelli or somebody? Somebody hilarious said they went to the Betty Ford Clinic, and he's like, that's good enough for me. He gets his stuff together. And like I said, he finds Jesus after this and he ends up, he ends up going back out on tour and doing some stuff and making some other records, but he never, he never really gets to have the sort of legacy that a lot of his contemporaries had because his career was so wound up in all of this dysfunction. Now there's a really funny story at the end of one of these books about right before Morris dies. He gets into a deal with Ryko Disc to sell because he he starts selling everything because he's going to yeah. die. So he's like, "Well, I might as well get all his money, I guess, or his family or whatever." And so he keeps stretching out these, even though he's like literally dying of colon cancer. He's stretching out these negotiations with Ryko Disc, and he makes the guys come to his house. And then it's like two dudes from Ryko, and then uh, at some point he makes them come into his bedroom. Because, like, they're over dinner, and he's like, I'm tired. And he's, like, sick, man, you know? So, like, he's like, come to my room. So he goes and, like, lays down in his bed, and he keeps these two dudes trying to get his, his catalog. Long story short, Tommy eventually starts getting, you asked me this earlier, when does he start getting money for his catalog? He doesn't get money for his catalog until after Morris is dead, and the copyrights are sold wow. and transferred, and he starts he starts to get stuff then. As recently as last year, there was a... Tommy James, the roulette years, like reissue 
and he should presumably get paid for that, which is pretty exciting. Wow. Now, that's, that's cool. the thing he, he, he had a sweet little cherry on top of this, which is all that craziness happens at 86. He starts to get straight at the beginning of 87. You know, in October of 87, there are two number ones. One of them is by Billy Idol. One of them is by <laughs> Tiffany. And they're it's both like, written by Tommy James. Wow, in 87. No kidding. October of 87. He has two songs written by the same artist in number one in the same month. And I, man, the, of all the Billy Idol songs that probably exist, I really don't like Moni Moni. Oh my I like God, it. I hate it so much, dude. I have this very specific memory of being at a church softball game when I was probably eight and just hearing Moni Moni playing on the field and just being like, what is this? Gang, gang. <laughs> It's like it's it's just the worst. It's for like it does not rock. Uh, well, there's he, nothing that rocks oh, his version. He talks in the book about how he doesn't like Moni Moni is not what they wanted to do. I mean, one thing that you know that the the letter that started this whole conversation that came in from Randy mentions is that he he actually had sort of like several different careers, right? Like he his style changes, and you know there's a lot of this shirking the title that is assigned to him. And one of them is sort of bubblegum at the beginning. And then it's this Moni Moni sound. And then he, he becomes part of this sort of like stoner psychedelic rock thing with Crimson and Clover. We didn't even talk about dragging the line that then comes later as a Tommy James song. Oh yeah. And there's all sorts of interesting asides in the book about how this stuff is recorded. And the time they go on the Ed Sullivan show and Ed Sullivan calls him Tony Jones and the Shondells or something. (laughs) He's oh, like, yeah, he gets the name wrong. He gets the oh, name wrong. Um, but there is some really interesting, innovative recording stuff that they actually do. Dragging the Line is like one piece of, of the recording just sort of taped over and over. Like, there's a lot of that sort yeah. of stuff that happens. But I, I'm telling you, man, the, the book is fantastic. All these books are great. That book is super fantastic. Give that a plug again. What's the title Me, again? The Mob, and the Music by Tommy James. Now... Got it. Here's the really interesting thing too. There's a, a video in the show notes from the press tour that's literally shot on like a camcorder from 10 or 15 <laughs> years ago when he was out like, and I think he's at a Barnes and Noble like in Chelsea or something plugging in this book, but he and Martin Fitzpatrick, his co-writer are like on chairs talking about the book. So that's a fun watch. If you just want to hear him tell some of the stories from the book, um, and then he has sold the film rights, and the woman, one of the producers from Goodfellas, has bought the film rights. One of the, oh my gosh, from my favorite mobster movie ever. And this what? is this is recently, like nineteen, like just pre-pandemic. So this could happen. All right, Roger, Roger that. Wow. So that was a journey. <laughs> Sheesh, man. No kidding. And unbelievable. No idea about any of. Um, it really like what happened? Why wasn't Tommy James more famous? And then I didn't know about the connections with the mob. That's some crazy stuff. Or about the Jesus. I didn't know about the Jesus. These are all like really cool. I'm I'm glad that Randy sent this letter in. I feel really good that we finally tackled this one. There's a few that have been hanging out there that I'm like, we've got to do this um, just for credibility's sake. And man, this was one of them. And it is, dude, it is enveloped my life for like a month, but it's been totally worth it. I <laughs> story's so good, man. So, so good. If you've got something you want us to check out, we are the story guys at gmail.com. We'll look into it for you. And uh, what should people keep doing until next time? Keep telling stories. Keep telling stories.
Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.